please turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. We're taking a break this week from the book of Ephesians as we focus on missions. Uh, This week we'll be talking about Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38. And then next week, uh, Dr. Samuel Naman, who is a who was born Palestinian, is a believer and has an amazing testimony that uh, I'm sure you're going to want to to hear. He'll be in our pulpit next week uh, as we conclude uh, our missions week with with, uh, his his message next Sunday. Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38, and I'm just going to go ahead and and dive in here to the text and and begin talking about it. Uh, As I talk about Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38, there's going to be uh, one main argument that I'm trying to put forth this morning. One central idea that I hope to convince you concerning the truth of. And I hope that as we look at Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38, that as you, you look at this passage, you're convinced of the, the truth of this of this statement as we look at it together. Uh, The statement is is this. True compassion for the needy, true compassion for the needy is always, and I use the term always intentionally, is always fueled by a passion for God to be worshipped among them. True compassion for the needy is always fueled by a passion to see God worshipped among them. The reverse is also true. A true passion for God, a, a true passion for His name, always fuels compassion for the needy. You cannot have compassion without passion. If you have a passion for God, and it does not manifest itself in compassion for those who are in need, I would argue that it is an idolatrous passion. The passion that you feel for God is not a passion for the God of Scripture. Because passion for God leads to compassion, fuels compassion for the needy. Similarly, if you have compassion for the needy and it is not derived from your passion for God, ultimately that compassion you feel for those in need is empty and useless. True compassion for the needy is fueled by a passion to see God worshipped among them. If that's true... Explain this to me. Currently, 40% of the world's population, 2.6 billion people, are part of an unreached people group. They're part of a group who has no chance of hearing the gospel presented to them in the context of an an indigenous church, a church made up of, of people like them. 2.6 billion people in our world today are part of of a people group that has no gospel presence among them. There are 648 million evangelicals. 
A third of the world would, would claim to be Christian. 650 million of them would, would claim to be evangelical Christians. And yet, out of 650 million evangelicals, about 30,700 of them are living and, and working in countries with unreached people groups. That's one out of every 21,000 evangelicals is ministering among the unreached. As a percentage, that's point zero 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 four percent of evangelicals are working among unreached people groups. What does that tell us about our compassion for the needy? And what does our compassion for the needy tell us about our passion for God's name? Our passion to see God worshipped among those who do not currently know him. I want you to look with me at the text here. Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38. True compassion for the needy is is always fueled by a passion for God to be worshipped among them. We're going to to see that played out in Jesus' interaction with his disciples and the crowds here in Matthew chapter 9. The text begins in verse 35, and it tells us this about what Jesus is doing. It says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. What is Jesus doing? Uh, Jesus is in his Galilean ministry, and he's going among the, the cities and the villages, these little towns, and he's going into synagogues, and he's proclaiming to them the gospel of the kingdom announcing that, that, that God's kingdom has arrived and it is beginning to be inaugurated. That's what he's doing. He's healing people of their afflictions and diseases. But as you've read the Gospels and, and seen Jesus proclaiming the good news, the gospel of the kingdom, have you ever wondered, what is he saying? Remember, this is before the cross. This is before the resurrection. Whenever you and I proclaim the gospel to someone, where do we start? We, we tell them about the cross. We, we tell them about their sin, their need for a Savior, Jesus' death and resurrection. Jesus doesn't tell the people yet about the cross, about the resurrection, at least not publicly. Have you ever wondered, what, what exactly does he say? Does he say, hey, There's this really cool thing going to happen in a couple years. Just wait. Or does he say more than that? Let me suggest this to you. Jesus, as he begins to proclaim the the gospel of the kingdom, is proclaiming that that God's kingdom is is coming and and is beginning to begin (laughs) And there's a couple things that he's, that he's telling people about this coming kingdom. And what he tells them is in line with what God has proclaimed through his prophets in the past and what he will continue to proclaim on into the future and what is now our present and what we'll continue to proclaim in the future until the Lord retu- returns. The first thing that Jesus says about this gospel, this good news about God's kingdom, is that God's kingdom offers relief. Relief from both physical and spiritual oppression. 
Look back with me to a couple chapters previous to Matthew chapter 4. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus begins his ministry, and, and listen to how Matthew describes it. He says, Jesus, as he begin this, begins this ministry, is fulfilling what the prophet, the prophet Isaiah foretold. Verse 16, the, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a, a great light. And for those dwelling in that region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Jesus' message of this coming kingdom offers people relief. And he tells them that that the the time of oppression spiritually is over for them. Describes it this way in verse 23. Jesus goes throughout all Galilee and is teaching their synagogues, proclaiming the, the gospel, the good news of this kingdom. Jesus preaches this this message of relief, this this message that the kingdom of God is is coming, it's beginning, and it is a good thing. In fact, this chapter that we're looking at, Matthew chapter 9, you just kind of flip through it and you you see these these amazing stories as as Jesus begins to to reveal a little bit about the the good news, the the gospel of this kingdom. The first few verses of of Matthew chapter 9, he deals with this paralytic. And as he deals with this man, he, he, he first of all, in verse, in verse 2, says to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. There's, there's relief from these, these sins that are weighing you down. The scribes see Jesus do it and say, This man is blaspheming, blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or, or to say, Rise and walk. And, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. The man rose and went home. The crowd saw it. They were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Jesus, as he comes and proclaims the message of the kingdom throughout the book of Matthew, you see the kingdom is a great thing. And Jesus, as he talks about this this coming kingdom and and tells about its wonders and gives people a little taste of how great this kingdom is going to be, this kingdom offers relief to the people. Relief from their spiritual oppression and the physical ailments of life. The kingdom is awesome. And Jesus proclaims something else about the kingdom. First of all, the kingdom means relief, Jesus proclaims. It also is entered into by repentance. Jesus, Matthew 4, tells us as he proclaims the good news of the kingdom, it calls upon people to repent. Let me just say a word about repentance because I think it's a term that's often misunderstood. Some Christians, when they hear the word repentance, think it, thinks it means this. They think that to repent means to stop sinning. That is, you, you think about all the wrong things you've done, and, and every wrong thing that you've ever done, you, you ask for forgiveness for, and, and perhaps say you have a problem with swearing. And you say, I'm going to repent of swearing, and I'm no longer going to swear anymore, and I'm, I'm turning from that sin, and, and, and now, I'm, I, 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 now I can be found acceptable before God. The idea is that for someone to be found acceptable before God, they have to repent. And repentance in this understanding means to to be free of sin. That's not a biblical understanding of repentance. A person doesn't find themselves acceptable before God by becoming perfect. That's not a biblical understanding of repentance. 
another unbiblical understanding of repentance, and, and I was at a church that, that taught this for some years, another unbiblical understanding of repentance is that repentance is, is simply changing your mind. Uh, okay, I, I used to think that telling lies was okay. Now I think that telling lies is wrong. I've, I've changed my mind about it. I now agree with God about what sin is. Sometimes this teaching says that that repentance is is not even necessary for for salvation. There's there's no repentance needed. That's also an unbiblical understanding of repentance. Here's a biblical understanding of repentance, I believe, as we look at the totality of Scripture. Repentance does involve a a change of mind. In one sense, a, a person is confronted with the reality of what sin is. And Jesus, as he is here in Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38, and sees all these people coming to him. Remember, in Matthew, he's just preached the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And he's talked to people about their need to, to turn away from sin and, and what sin truly is. So repentance is, is becoming aware of your sin, seeing the things you're clinging to, and saying, this is wrong, I'm turning from it, I'm turning from my sin and placing my faith in God's provision of salvation. I'm no longer clinging to my sin. I'm letting it go. I'm turning away from it and turning toward God's provision of salvation. That's why I think that in the book of Acts and and other places in Scripture, you see the, the writers use the term repentance interchangeably with belief. It's kind of the other side of that coin of belief. As I, as I place my faith in Jesus, my trust in God's salvation, I'm, turning, I'm repenting, I'm turning away from my sin, turning toward God. And so John the Baptist is the first one who pro- proclaims this message of repentance, right? Matthew chapter 3, he says to, to the people, they, they need to repent and they need to bear fruits in keeping with repentance. That is, if you repent, if you turn from your sins... There's going to be some some fruit, some results of that. In Luke chapter 3, the the people come to John the Baptist. John says, you need to repent. Yeah, I'm just curious. John, what does that look like in my life? John the Baptist says, look, you got two tunics? Uh Uh-huh. That guy has none? Uh Uh-huh. Give him one. Yeah, John, I'm a tax collector. What do I need to do? You know how you're taking too much money? Uh Uh-huh. Don't do that anymore. Okay, thanks. Yeah, I'm a soldier. I want to turn from, what does it look like for me? Okay, soldiers, what you need to do is stop complaining about your, your wages. Really? Yes. Okay. Repentance is coming in, realizing what your sin is, and as God calls you to repentance, realizing that that sin, changing your mind about it, and turning to God. And as you do that, fruit results. The fruit is not repentance. The fruit is not repentance, but the fruit comes from repentance. Jesus is preaching a message about repentance. He's preaching about the coming of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, he says, offers you relief, and to enter this kingdom, you repent. You turn away from your sin, and have faith in the provision of salvation that God offers. And as the story of Jesus unfolds, the people find out he is that provision of salvation. Come to verse 36 of Matthew chapter 9. As we come to verse 36 of Matthew chapter 9, 
In the end of verse 35, the people are coming to Jesus. There's throngs, and Jesus is healing their every disease and every affliction. Think about the diseases and afflictions these, these people would have. They, they have this, this diet that is low in certain things that the body needs. They, they've looked at skeletal remains from this time period, and they've seen that they were that the people had iron deficiencies and protein deficiencies. The, the majority of people had terrible, uh, debilitating arthritis. People could get a, a fever, and it could be deadly, or, or gastrointestinal diseases, and, and, and that would just, it could wipe them out. And there's no relief from these things. And, and these people come to Jesus. Jesus is proclaiming a message of relief and repentance. And the people, what do they hear? Relief. Relief. And they see relief physically. They come, to peep, they come to Jesus. These, these throngs of people come to Jesus. He's healing every disease and affliction. These people that come to Jesus, don't be fooled, okay? As Jesus stands here, and perhaps just like on the Sermon on the Mount, he's kind of on an elevated place, and he sees all these, these people coming to him, looks out and sees these crowds, don't be fooled, these people aren't really nice people. It's not like these are the super sweet people of Galilee. They don't need to repent. They just want to hear some good teaching. As we see Jesus interact with these people throughout Scripture, we see that these people are petty. These people are greedy. These people uh, would, would stab each other in their, the back. These people love money. These people have tons of issues. And as these people come to Jesus, these people with issues, Jesus looks out at them, and the text tells us what? The text tells us, as he sees these crowds, perhaps standing on this elevated place, these people come to him, Jesus looks out, and he feels compassion. Compassion in the Greek means to be, to be moved in the inward parts. It's this idea that as you, as you see something bad happening to someone, there's this, this feeling within you that, that feels sorrow and, and desires to assist them, desires to help them, wants to do something to relieve that suffering they feel. Whenever we went down to the, the orphanage in Guatemala, and we saw our little girl, and we were so excited about the opportunity to help her, we saw her, and then we saw 60 other children that we were unable to help. And some of those we could kind of take some comfort in as we realized they were going to go to other families. But then there were a percentage of children there that, that were not going to be adopted and to this day have not been adopted. And, and as you, you think about those kids and you think about their faces, if you've ever been in an orphanage, what do you feel? You have this compassion. It's this desire to assist them, this this, almost this, this overwhelming weight within you as you think about that need, and it, it propels you to want to do something. And Jesus, as he looks out on the people, feels compassion. We see in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, God is a compassionate God. As he, he sees the spiritual needs and the physical needs of his people, he's moved with a desire to help them. Jesus is no different as God. Over and over again, the gospel writers point us to the compassion that Jesus has for people. As Jesus sees crowds, he feels compassion. As he sees 4,000 people who are hungry, he feels compassion. As he sees two blind men, Matthew tells us, he has compassion. 
And this is no different. As he looks out at the people and he sees them in their need, the text tells us, and he saw, as he saw the crowds, he had compassion. These are people with physical needs and spiritual needs. As Matthew tells us that Jesus had compassion, I think there's an element of Jesus that felt compassion because of the physical needs that they had. We see that other places in Scripture. But that's not what Matthew draws our attention to, is it? Look again at your Bibles. It says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion. Why? Because they were harassed and helpless. They were distressed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus looks out at these people, and he sees a a group of people who need the life-changing gospel message. They need to hear about the relief of the kingdom of God, and they need to enter that kingdom of God through repentance. And he sees the need that they have, and he sees that they're, they're weighed down and distressed and downtrodden, and Jesus has compassion upon them. Notice, as he feels this compassion, that the compassion that Jesus has for the people, and this is very crucial for us, Christian, to understand, the compassion that he has for these people does not come after their repentance, He had compassion as he saw these sinners because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Those people, and we won't talk about that this much this morning, but there were people that were in the lives of these crowds that were coming to Jesus that had been assigned the duty of being their spiritual shepherds, and they had failed at that task. And Jesus feels compassion because of the spiritual state of these people. They need the life-changing good news of the kingdom, and they don't have it. Jesus sees their spiritual oppression, the spiritual oppression upon under which the people are laboring. He wants to see them freed. Let's think about two observations, and then we'll talk a little bit about, more about the text, and then have two more observations. The first observation is this first observation is this. People who have physical needs, people who have physical needs are people who have spiritual needs. People who have physical needs are also people who have spiritual needs. Let's not minimize the physical needs that these people have as they come to Jesus and they desire to be healed of their various afflictions and and diseases. God is a God who is who is very interested in the physical needs that we have, and and don't over-spiritualize the kingdom of God. Yes, the kingdom of God is going to be a wonderful place spiritually, and and, and that, I would say, is the the primary thing that we as believers are are yearning for, but but God's kingdom, God's coming kingdom, also offers physical relief. That's an exciting thing to think about. The people, though, that, that come into our lives, it's important to remember, are people who also have physical needs though and people who have physical needs also have spiritual needs this crowd that comes to jesus doesn't realize why they really need him what their ultimate need is 
two thoughts about this. First thought, this. Maybe you're here this morning and you've misdiagnosed what your real ultimate need is. You're here this morning and you're like, you know, uh, I really just have some, some uh, physical needs in my life. And I, I'm here and hoping that, that God will meet those physical needs. And I'm here this morning and, and I have some, some just emotional needs. And, and I, I just hope that God meets these needs. And God's saying, you know, your ultimate need to come to me is a need for repentance. The people who come to Jesus here don't know why they really need him, what their ultimate need is. They want to get the relief without the repentance. God says, no, no. You repent and you experience the the blessing of of spiritual and physical relief. Another thought is this. Perhaps God has placed people in your life with physical needs and emotional needs in order for you to be a shepherd to them. There's a woman at work. She tells you about the things that are going on in, in her life and you think, man, it's It's terrible. Maybe God has placed those things in her life and you in her path so that you can offer her the real relief that she needs. And her ultimate problem isn't her kids. The ultimate problem isn't her husband. The ultimate problem is that she is in rebellion to God. And God loves her and is offering repentance for her so that she can turn from these things that she's trying to find satisfaction in and experience the joy of relationship with him. Your neighbor, God's placed in your life, and, and your neighbor thinks that, that their, their big problem is, is the neighbor on the other side, and, and God has, has placed you in your neighbor's life to, to present the life-changing gospel message, the good news of the kingdom of God that says, look, you can enter my kingdom through repentance and experience the, the relief that God offers you through salvation in his son, Jesus Christ. God calls us to address the spiritual needs of the people in our life as we see their their physical needs and emotional needs as well. The second observation about this this passage is this. Compassion is the biblical response to people in need. Compassion is the right biblical response to people who are in need, whether it's physical need or spiritual need. Jesus, listen to this very carefully. Jesus, as he saw these people coming to him, didn't step back and go, you know what? Peter, see that guy? Infected thumb. It's his own fault. It is his own. He was yelling at someone and hit his hand against the wall and got angry, and that's why his thumbs hurt. Sinners. Jesus knew these people needed to repent. He knew their hearts better than we know our own hearts. He knew their wickedness far, far more in depth than we know even our own wickedness. And Jesus, as he sees Wicked people who need to repent, his response is one of compassion. The biblical response to people we see in need is to have a heart of compassion. And we as Christians, quite frankly, fail on this account over and over and over and over again. And there's a group of people in the Gospels who see people in need and call 
and instead of calling attention to the need, call attention to their sin. And you know what that group of people is, right? It's the Pharisees and the scribes. Jesus never minimizes sin. He never says, you know what? It's a little sin. Don't worry about it. But even as he calls people to an incredible standard of righteousness, he is compassionate. And so as you see the the homeless drug addict, is your response, you know what? If that person would just clean themselves up, they wouldn't be in that situation. Or what's, what's, the, what's your heart attitude as you think about the illegal immigrant? I'm very amazed at some of the language that Christians use to describe the problem of illegal immigration in our country. And I'm not getting into to what the policy should be and, and how we should implement the policy. I'm talking about the hard attitude towards illegal immigrants by conservative Christians. Quite frankly, I don't understand it sometimes. What should be our, our compassionate response to, to families in need who, yes, are, are, need, need repentance? What's our heart attitude toward them? What's our heart attitude to the Palestinian who, upon hearing that the, the World Trade Center had been attacked, that the Twin Towers had collapsed, is, is dancing in the street? What is our heart attitude to peop, toward people who hate us? who burned the American flag. The heart attitude, the biblical heart attitude of a person who is passionate about the glory of God is a heart of compassion, a compassionate heart response. It's what Jesus has as the people approach him. It's what we must have as well. We see Jesus continue. Verse 37, he looks at his disciples and he says this, he says, the harvest is plentiful but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Disciples, I've got good news and bad news. The good news is that there are a ton of people out there who need to hear the good news of the kingdom. There's no shortage of people out there, disciples. Look at these guys. There's no shortage of sinners out there. That's the good news. The bad news is that there are very few people who have compassionate hearts. There are few people out there who desire to see these people repent and experience the relief that God offers. In chemistry, there's something called, a, in a chemical reaction, there's something called the, the limiting reagent. Remember that from chemistry class? Whenever you have a chemical reaction, there's, there's two reactants that kind of react together to, to form this, this chemical reaction. And, and eventually, one of, those, uh, one of those parts of that chemical reaction is, is, is used up, is, is burned up, it goes away. And so the chemical reaction stops. Maybe in chemistry class, your class did this. Uh, to, to explain, to explain a, a chemical process and what a limiting reagent is, our, our teacher in, in high school gym, uh, chemistry had us all bring either bread, peanut butter, or jelly. You could bring whatever you want. And so we came that, that morning, and we, we dumped off our supplies, and throughout the day, kids, kids dumped off stuff. And the next day, we looked, and, and we had tons of, of peanut butter. We had tons of jelly. And then we had, we had bread, like, to the ceiling, and she said, now guess which of these is going to run out first? And we all made our guesses. 
And even though the, the bread seemed like it was just, it was just a massive amount of bread, the, the bread ran out first because it, it wasn't used very efficiently, right? The, the bread took up a lot of space, but it didn't do a lot of good. As Jesus looks out at the, the harvest that's available, he says, these people are ready. Our limiting reagent is people that would go to them. And sometimes I wonder if, if we as evangelicals are just like bread. I don't mean that in a good way. We kind of take up a lot of space and look impressive, but we're not that efficient in how we use our resources. Jesus says, look, there's only a few who respond to this need. Pray. And this word pray here, it's, it's, the, the Greek word means, means to beg, plead. Translates it here, uh, pray earnestly to the Lord. Just, just beseech God. And Jesus says, look, uh, and here's where we get the idea of passion. Look, if you're passionate about God, if you desire him to be worshipped, if you want people to turn from their sins and engage in worship of God, beg God, plead with God, beseech him earnestly. God, you're the Lord of the harvest. This is your harvest. Now, now God, please provide people. We, we beg of you, provide laborers who will come among these people who need you so desperately and, and provide for that harvest. We want to see you worship and we want to see their, their needs met. The compassion that they feel for these people is fueled by their passion for God. Jesus says, pray earnestly, beg, plead that God would provide workers. You cannot pray that way. You cannot pray that way if you don't love God, if you don't love his people, if you aren't compassionate for the needy. This brings me to observation number three. Number three, passionate prayer. Passionate prayer precedes the Lord's provision. Passionate prayer precedes the Lord's provision. My kids, your kids too, if they come to you, they really want something, how do they ask? Hey, do you mind if we have this? No? Okay. It's cool. I'm good. Now, you can tell if your kids really want something is if you say, you know what? Not right now. Okay, well, when can we ask again? I, I don't know. Like an hour? Like an hour from right now or an hour from when I first asked you? I don't, just, just don't ask me right now. Okay. All right. Can we have that? No? A snack? Okay. Good. Please? Please. Come on, please, please, please. It's... They really want it. They really desire that to happen. How do we pray for God to provide workers for the harvest? Oh, let's see, I haven't prayed for missionaries in a while. It's missions week. God, uh, please help. Uh, we pray for the. Uh, we pray for Barb, and we pray for the Craignesses. Jesus' name, Amen. Or is it a passion that we have? God, we, we pray that, that your, your name would be glorified in these midst. We, we pray that you would provide workers. We want to see you worship. We want to, you to provide so that other people can, can worship you as well. Passionate prayer. God calls us to engage in passionate prayer, and he always calls that to precede the time of his provision. And I believe he does it for many reasons. We don't have time to get into all of them today. But I believe the main one is he desires us to rely upon him so that as we see him work, he receives the glory. Don't buy into the idea that, that prayer is just kind of a little exercise that God has us go through that doesn't really actually affect things. James tells us the effectual prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Prayer is part of a sovereign God's plan to bring about his provision. It does work, it does accomplish things, and he receives greater glory 
because of it. Passionate prayer precedes the Lord's provision. Number four, the fourth observation here from the text is that true compassion for the lost is fueled by a passion for God's name. God loves for people to be saved. Jesus here desires these people to repent. He desires them to enter the kingdom of heaven. True compassion, number four, the fourth observation, true compassion for the lost is fueled by a passion for God's name. Malachi 1.11, God says, From the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. True compassion for the lost is fueled by a passion for God's name. Let me close with two applications for you. Two applications. Again, the the central argument that I hope that I've made successfully this morning is that true compassion for the needy is fueled by a a passion for God to be worshipped among them. And reverse, a true passion for God always fuels a compassion for the needy. Two applications. The first is this. Ben already mentioned this in our announcement time this morning. But, but as you're going to be leaving in a few minutes, Lord willing, you're going to be receiving a placemat. I would urge you to beseech God for the people who are on this placemat, who are laboring to make God known among people who do not already know him. Beseech the Lord of the harvest for these laborers whom he's provided and pray that that God would would multiply their efforts. Use this. (laughs) Beseech the Lord of the harvest to provide more laborers for the harvest and to pray for the ones who are already ministering. And then also, uh, next week we'll be talking about this more, but I want to tell you about a, a new ministry that's beginning at our church and the missions committee believes that this is a great time to announce it in a missions conference. There's, there's something that we're beginning called the, the Bethany Fellowship of Churches Nurture Program. And this ministry is, is for people whom God is, is working within their hearts, people who have a, a passion for God's name and are therefore compassionate for the lost. This ministry is designed to help nurture with them a, a further understanding of God's call to missions. And, and some people... Maybe God's working in your heart and say, God, I have a passion for your name. I want you to be worshipped among the people. And if you're calling me to missions in a different cultural context, I'm ready. Send me. And what you need is some direction. And so this nurture program is designed to allow you to, to be prepared with the basic knowledge, character, skill, character and, and skills that are required to, to understand what missions work looks like. We, we believe that we as a church have the spiritual obligation to help provide for people who are called into missions work. But it's also for people who say, you know what, I, I believe that God is continuing to call me here in the local church context, but, but I want to be equipped and I want to be able to, to be effective in participating in the Great Commission. And so this nurture program is for you as well. And we'll be talking more about that next week. But I'd encourage you to, to prayerfully consider, you know, God, are, are you calling me? Are you calling me? be a part of your missions program. If you take 
I mentioned earlier, one out of every 21,000 evangelicals is called to an unreached people group. If you have a kind of a cheap cell phone like mine and you divide one into 21,000 to see what the percentage is, you know what you come up with? Zero. <laughs> it rounds it to zero. It's effectively zero. May God stir within his people a passion for his name. May God stir within the evangelical church a passion for his name and his glory that would cause us to feel compassion for the needy and cause us to beseech the Lord of the harvest to send more laborers and to be the laborers he calls for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this prayer that Jesus, your son, calls us to. We thank you that your harvest is is plentiful. We pray that you would help us to have compassion for those who are in need. We ask there be groups now who do not know you, who as a result of our church would know you, would glorify your name into eternity. We pray this for your glory, your son Jesus' name. Amen.